Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello everyone, welcome. Welcome to our Tuesday talk. My name is Lisa Slade and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Art Gallery. Welcome to our Nature Festival talk. We have two of the Nature Festival team with us here in the audience today, which is really wonderful. Amber and Jill, welcome. And we are, of course, on Ghana country. I'm going to do two Ghana acknowledgements. I'm going to do the one that I always do, and then I'm going to do the new one that was taught to me just last week at the launch of the Nature Festival. So, Agsa Ghana Miana Yatanga Yuandi Natalia. The Natalia at the end is a little thank you. And Jack Buckskin, who is a patron of the festival, taught the following Ghana welcome. Mani Nyadlu Tampindi Nyadlu Ghana Yatanga Imparindi. And it essentially, as does the AGSA welcome, acknowledges that we meet here on the lands of the Ghana people. The focus for my talk today is going to be on the, no the notion of an art gallery as an arboretum. An arboretum is ultimately a kind of tree museum, except that the trees are living and not dead. And I, I guess I have two key passions, one being trees, and the other, of course, being art. So this is a treat for me to be able to bring them together. I'm not a botanist, however, I'd like to make that disclaimer. I'm an art historian who has an interest in trees. <laughs> so what I'm gonna do is talk about two works in particular, and my team are going to pass around, and I'm happy for you to do it now, team, some images, because the two works of art that I'm going to focus on are modest in scale, and they're also located rather appropriately behind the former trees here in the form of this colonnade. They're located on the southern wall over here and on our western wall over here. The two works of art, one of them is a recent acquisition. In fact, and I noticed Naomi had a copy of the latest magazine. Naomi, do you mind if I hold up your copy? Our latest art gallery magazine, for those of you who are members, and I know that many of you in the audience are, features an article on one of the works of art. And the other work of art is on loan, and I'm going to be talking to you about that in a short time. And I'd just like to say a big thanks to our team who make these talks happen every week. Isabel over here on sound, Bernadette and Annika who are coming around with the images. Now Bernadette and Annika and Megan and all of our team in public programs have been putting together a fantastic program for the Nature Festival. And if you're sitting in the audience as a regular Tuesday talk goer and you're thinking, oh, what's the Nature Festival? I would encourage you to check out the website to see what's on. It's really easy to navigate website. There's a whole lot of fascinating talks, presentations, performances, you name it, as part of the program, which goes for 10 days. We always like to be part of the festival. And in fact, Annika has programmed a wonderful first Friday pretty much around the festival, and that's on here this Friday. And our children's program, known as Start, is also taking a leaf, pardon the pun, out of the Nature Festival's book. Okay, let's talk about trees. So the first thing I'd like to do, after acknowledging that we are on Ghana country, is moreover that we meet on the land of the River Redgum. In fact, the very name, the Ghana name for this place, cites or makes reference to, pays homage to the River Redgum. And the River Redgum, I'm, I'm a bit fascinated and also sometimes slightly cranky with Latin descriptive names for plants. And I'm gonna unpack that a little bit for you today. 
The river red gum, as many of you would know, is known as a eucalyptus, Camalgelensis, Camalgelensis. People pronounce that second bit in different ways. One of the reasons people pronounce it differently is because it actually comes from the Italian. And one of the very curious things about botany is that botanical names are often attributed to plants long from the place from which they came. So whilst we think of the river red gum as one of the most ubiquitous eucalypts in Australia, in fact, a defining eucalypt in Australia, its name is a tribute, and this is where I get a little bit cranky, to the Italians. So it's actually named after a town in Napoli. That town in Napoli is where, in the early 19th century, a eucalyptus commendulensis was found to be growing. Of course, Ghana people for millennia and Aboriginal people across this entire country have given, attributed many, many names to the river red gum. It's known as red because of the sap rather than the colour. If you're familiar with salmon gums, for instance, among one of my favourites, you'll know that they have a pinkish hue. The river red gum does not have that. But it's the sap from the river red gum that gives it its common name. The river red gum is, as I mentioned, ubiquitous, and it is among, and I love this, I love the, how uncertain this is, it's among one of 500 to 1,000, quite a point of distinction there, eucalyptus species. Now, the reason that the number is so uncertain is because there is much consternation right up until last year around the genus of eucalypt. In fact, eucalypt can be divided now, and this is thanks to the, some work of some botanists based in Sydney in the 1990s, into three broad classifications, into eucalypts, into Carimbias and into Angophras. If you're someone who has a, an East Coast kind of origin, as I do, the Angophra will be very familiar, known for, once again, it's quite pink in colour and known for its very beautiful serpentine limbs. If you're from the West Coast, then the Carimbia will be very familiar, perhaps the Carimbia which we know commonly as a silver princess. With between 500 and 1,000, you'll forgive the fact that I'm not acquainted with each and every one of them. And something that people find quite surprising is that whilst they are largely endemic to Australia, they are not exclusively Australian. In fact, there are six, which I guess is a relatively small number, of the 500 to 1,000 that are found only in other places. And those other places are the Philippines, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea. So across those three countries, there are about six eucalypt species that are only found in those places. There is, in fact, and I think about this because we've been doing some work with the wonderful Philippine-born artist from Mindanao called Mark Valenzuela. In fact, he's the next Sala artist. Mark Valenzuela comes from Mindanao, and I can't wait to have this conversation with him next time I see him, because there's a Mindanao gum. It's called the rainbow gum, and it's one of the few eucalypts that grows in a rainforest area, hence high, water, high rain, and it has the most fantastic kind of bright green bark. It looks a bit like a saligna, if you know a ribbon gum. It has brown kind of ribbons that go over this really bright green bark. So, by now, that's my preamble. 
I hope you enjoyed that. I was channeling the horticulturalist within. So by now you should have in front of you two works of art, images of works of art. I'd like to talk about the painting in the first instance. I'm talking about the painting here by Hilda Ricks-Nicholas, recently acquired through our Collectors Club. And it's a painting that was made in Morocco, in Tangier to be precise, either in 1912 or 1914. I have my theories about which of those two. The reason what we're not entirely sure is because Ricks Nicholas painted in Morocco both times. In 1912, actually I'm going to get you, see if you can guess who it was that accompanied her in 1912. If you look at the colour in that particular painting and you think about European artists who were making art, who do you think might have been with, this is a really hard question, who might have been with Ricks Nicholas in 1912 in Tangier, Morocco? Henri Matisse. So she and Matisse travelled to, they were both there at the same time, painting in Tangier. Hilda Ricks Nicholas is one of, I think, many female Australian artists who had the most extraordinary of careers and who skirted sometimes around the edges and sometimes right into the centre of European modernism, playing a, a really extraordinary role in defining and galvanising modernist movements. One reading of her work, and this is one put forward by the art historian Jeanette Horn, who has recently published on Rix Nicholas, positions her not as an orientalising artist, but someone who was deeply indebted to painting en plein air, outside, and capturing with kind of veritas and truth what she saw and experienced. It's also argued that she gets to, she makes her very best painting in Morocco. Why do you think that might have been so? The light. It was in Morocco that the light most resembled that of her country of birth and also was the most virulent, the most kind of aggressive in some ways. Now, painting outdoors in Morocco, painting outdoors in any conditions, let's face it, is a challenge. So she produced, as most artists have, even when they're defined as en plein air artists, she produced sketches predominantly outside that were then finished. But the scale of the painting, and the painting... For those of you who haven't spotted it yet on the wall, I'm just going to step back through the colonnades, is just here. It's twice the size of what you've got in front of you. So it's roughly kind of A3 in scale. So it's a modest scaled painting, very much in keeping with the other works that she made. And there are two others that are smaller there beneath that particular work. Even from where you're sitting at the back, I'm sure you get a sense of these colours calling us. So early 20th century, at a moment when artists were liberating themselves and their techniques and painting with great virtuosity, but also with great freedom and speed. The camera, of course, had liberated. People talk about the camera and the invention of photography as the death of painting. I like to think about it as the liberation of painting because it meant that painters no longer had to be photographers, if you see my point. They were free to make marks however they chose and free to capture life and light in whatever manner they chose. Now, Rick's Nicholas's story is, it's almost so extreme it's hard to believe. She was an artist who studied in Paris, exhibited in Paris. She met her beloved, who was an Australian soldier, married him, and days after their marriage, he returned to the front line and was killed. She retained his name, so the Nicholas is, was his name. 
In the same three-year period, she actually lost her sister, her mother and her husband. She returned to Australia in 1918 and it seems that she never quite gets back to this joyous, open, impressionist kind of post-impressionist moment that the period in Morocco represents. It represents a liberation for her as a woman artist and as someone who's so drawn to paint. Now, you might be sitting there, I hope you're sitting there thinking, what is she talking about this for when we're talking about trees? Hopefully you will have noticed on the left-hand side of the painting a grove of trees. They are Eucalyptus camaldulensis. They are the river red gum that we all know and love that have made their way from the Antipodes all the way over to Morocco. In fact, to this very day, Eucalyptus camaldulensis occupy the lion's share of forest forestation plants or forestation trees in Morocco. So their industry is still buoyed by the river red gum. Not only am I fascinated by the fact that you've got a painting of a tree found in Australia that has an Italian name in Morocco, yeah? But I'm also fascinated by the way in which the painterly surface becomes a site on which Rick's Nicholas is able to, I think, question, qualify her own identity. And this notion of identity, I think it's very, very, very much at the, forethinking, at the forefront of our minds right now. But more than 100 years ago, people were much more cosmopolitan than they are right now. Not too difficult these days, let's face it. But this idea of, well, who am I and how do I connect and where is my family? For Rix Nicholas and her family was certainly a pertinent one. There was this sense to which particularly women artists who were of a wealthy means were able to spend time in, at home in Europe or the UK. And people would talk about the United Kingdom as home even if they were born in Australia. So this sense of troubling belonging is something that comes through in this work for me. The fact that she has decided to include, I wouldn't argue that those eucalypts are the star subject of the work, but she's certainly included those eucalypts. To me, once again, is a kind of touchstone of this idea of longing, belonging and identity. In 1918, when she returns home, she lives for some time in the city before moving to rural locations. And when she's in the city, she paints this fantastic picture, which is in the Art Gallery of New South Wales collection, of gums in Toongabby. Now, if you know Western Sydney like I do, Toongabby is hardly considered rural these days, but this is a fantastic painting of gum trees. Not, it's not dissimilar to our Hyson over there, uh, the, the, particularly the mystic morn work, this idea of saplings and a view seen through the saplings. She paints those gums. So I would argue that she was always drawn towards the arboreal as a subject matter, always drawn towards that sense of connecting with nature as she's depicting it. Now, the river red gum, we're going to step a, put, place the river red gum to one side now, and now we're going to start to focus on the ghost gum. And the other work that you've got in your hands is a work by the famed Albert Namatjira. It's a work that's on loan to our collection, and it is, of course, a painted woomera. 
Now, the ghost gum, whilst I've just made the point that I don't believe the Eucalyptus camaldulensis is the star subject of the Rix Nicholas, the ghost gum is almost invariably the subject of an Amagera. In fact, many art historians have argued that the ghost gum is Namajira, that the ghost gum stands in for and becomes an embodiment of Namajira. Rather than serving as a compositional device where the gum tree is positioned off to the left or the right as a framing device, the gum tree, as you can see in this work here, is absolutely, the ghost gum is absolutely centre stage. Now, it's not centre stage in a way that would make the composition ungainly. It's just a little bit off centre, but no doubt it's an important part of this particular painting. Now, the ghost gum. Here we have another botanical crises at work because the ghost gum, until very recently, was known as the eucalyptus papuana. The eucalyptus papuana. But when the split happened late last century, into eucalypts, carimbias and angophoras, the ghost gum went down the carimbia line. And the ghost gum, and this is a moment of great joy, I think, now has an Aranda name. And it's Apaparinya. So it's carimbia Apaparinya. And in a moment that I had one of those, when I was researching, I had one of those little wow moments. Apaparinya means grows near a river red gum. So the name of the ghost gum refers back to the river red gum. They're connected. So the ghost gum is this significant sentinel. It's anthropomorphized by Namatjira. So let's just talk about Namatjira's practice for a minute. One of the common creation myths of Australian art is that Albert Namajira was a camelier who was introduced to art by Rex Batterby. Now, I'm, I'm never going to downplay Batterby's role as a creative collaborator, but in fact, Namajira was making art long before he met Batterby. He wasn't painting on paper. He was working with wood. He was working in timber. And he was making, for the mission at Hermansburg, boomerangs, woomerers, and mulga plaques. Mulga plaques, you've probably seen them, they're like a kind of lozenge or ovoid shape, and they'll often have poker work, pyrography. He liked to draw with fire onto timber. Now, in our exhibition, which is just about to open, it's lovely to be doing this talk on the eve of Tarnandi, we'll have an incredible object from the museum's collection next door, which was made by Albert Damagira, and it's a very good example of what I'm talking about. There's an entire exhibition within the exhibition downstairs in Gallery 24 that cites a wonderful, wonderful story in Western Aranda history. In the early 1930s, there had been a, a series of droughts across time and there was a community call out for water to be brought to Hermansburg or Indaria, which is its local name. Una Teague, Violet Teague and Jessie Trail, all of whom are connected with the Australian art world, jumped in their big old car in Melbourne and drove to Alice Springs. And they supported a call out 
for a pipeline to run from Alice Springs, which as the name suggests has a natural spring underneath it, to run all the way out to Hermansburg. After that moment, there, was, there were no more droughts in Western Aranda country, in Hermansburg specifically. The pipeline is called the Kupriya Pipeline. It's spelled lots of ways, but one spelling is K-U-P-R-I-L-Y-A, Kupriya. The Kupriya Pipeline was fundraised, and so a whole lot of work was sold. There were art exhibitions. The Teague sisters got really involved with that. We have a work in our collection, actually, by Jessie Trail that was made during her time out in Hermansburg. And what we're borrowing from the museum for Tarnady is a mulga boomerang which has been painted with the pipeline workers with the pipeline going in over their heads. It's a really rare object because it's a piece of history. It's a very good example of the fact that Namatjira didn't start making art in 1936, that he was making it in 1930, that was probably 31, 32 is probably the date of that object. What happens once he starts to work with watercolour is that he brings together, and the object that you have represented in your hands is, is a beautiful example, he brings together those two ways of working. And it's Albert Namajira who invents the idea of the painted woomera. I just want to talk about woomeras for a minute. Has anyone ever held a woomera in their hands? They are, as I guess some ways you'd expect, if you're a tool or a weapon person, they are incredibly light. They're made not from eucalyptus. They're actually made from an acacia, which is, as you would know, a wattle. They're made specifically from acacia anura. And many of you would also know that acacias are short-lived plant species on the whole. Acacia anura being a radical exception. They live for hundreds of years. Acacia anura is, you can find it here in Adelaide. They're, they're, it's planted and you can go and buy it up at Bel Air but it's a plant that has been used for millennia for its timber. And its timber is highly distinctive because it has at least two colours. So it has a gold colour and a dark colour that runs through the timber. And it's better known, sometimes I forget to state the obvious. Does anyone know what its common name or its better name? Well known? Mulga. You got it, Joan. It's commonly known as a mulga. So when people talk about mulga, that's what they're talking about. Now it was Namatjira who in this long tradition of using mulga for weaponry, decides that he can conflate and bring together these two things. So he would sand the mulga wood and then paint delicately onto the mulga wood. Now, of course, the moment you paint onto a woomera, it no longer becomes a woomera. It becomes a work of art. And Namatjira was absolutely cognizant of this moment. Now, very tragically, we don't have a woomera by Albert Namatjira in our collection. We have one on loan over here, and then we have a couple of recent, very, very recent acquisitions in the last 18 months to two years that are on display in Gallery 6. I have a theory about why we don't have one. We were the first gallery in the country to acquire an Albert Namatjira watercolour, and we did so in 1939. First exhibition of Namatjiras is 1936, or his first starts in 36, we acquire in 39. So we weren't too bad off the mark. I think it's now 2021 and we haven't acquired a Woomera. We haven't acquired a Woomera because I believe that Woomeras and spears and those objects have sat uncomfortably for some curators and directors perhaps outside the realm of art. Considered in a sense to be tools or weaponry, 
They've sat outside the canon. I'd conversely argue that the early appetite for Namatjira was facilitated by the fact that he was painting with materials that were comfortable for museum curators and directors at the time. Does that make sense? That it made its way into the art gallery and into the museum because it sat within a level of comfort around what art gallery should hold. For me personally, I think they're the most extraordinary object for all the reasons I've just stated. What's fascinating about this one for me, and you can have, you'll have time when I stop talking to come and have a close look at the object itself, and please make sure you do, is that the Spinifex resin on the left-hand side of the object shows some sign of wear and even use. And when you go up and look at the two fantastic Woomeras, one of them by Cordula Ebiturinia, the only woman who was working around Namajira's time, a little bit later than Namajira, towards the end of his life, the works there also show some use. So a Woomera is a fantastically multi-purpose object made from acacia and neura. It has a lightness, but also a practicality and a resilience. You can make fire inside it. You can grind food inside it. You can carry things inside it. And of course, you can use it for its primary purpose, which is to launch spears. So there is a talon it's probably the best word for it, a talon of acacia and neura at the end of the Woomera, which is placed in the end of the spear. The spears are made from pandoria, from a vine, ultimately, so that they're super light and they're straightened. That's why there are so many paintings across the central desert that are called straightening spears, because you had to literally straighten a spear to make it work. So that straightened spear is launched by the talon of acacia and neura that sits at the end of the Woomera and it's cast into space. And yes, of course, the name Woomera for what was in the middle of the 20th century the world's largest military base and the world's largest armoury of the air has in fact been drawn, of course, from Aboriginal culture. Now, the idea of the Woomera as an object that you would write with fire upon was already established. It's Namajira, of course, who creates his own way of working by using it as a painted surface. Many artists have pointed out, or many art historians rather, have pointed out the mise en abîme, mise en abîme from the French. That is to put oneself in the kind of picture within a picture. Now, a mise en abîme means that Namatjira is painting the scene of the very thing that he's carving the scene on. Does that make sense? So there's this beautiful play. He's actually using the very timbers to paint as the subject matter for the timbers that are painted onto those timbers. And this brings me to something that's closer to home. In Bidinjara and Yankanjara, and I think even in some more northern languages, the word for tree is the same as the word for wood, which is the same as the word for things made from wood, handicrafts and the like. The word is puno, P-U-N-U, puno. And puno is used across all of those things. So you've got these references in the case, to bring this all together, in the case of Namatjira, he's using nature to render nature. He is himself in and as nature, not separate from it, not a kind of European way of seeing that landscape, but a Western Arundel way of being that landscape. So, and the tree, particularly the Corimbia, becomes the symbol of Namatjira, that ghost gun becomes Namatjira himself.
In the case of Hilderix nicholas, the eucalyptus camaldulensis, the river red gum, strikes a connection with home. If you've travelled overseas and seen eucalypts, it is a slightly disorienting experience. So she makes a connection with home through those trees. Seeing them in an unusual place also reminds her that she's not at home. It's one of those uncanny moments of being close to home and yet not at home, so would have perhaps underscored the homesickness. She goes on to return home and gum trees in particular become a star subject for her, particularly in her later life. Very happy to take any questions. Have we considered or have we done an exhibition before on the eucalypt? Not to my knowledge per se. It's a really interesting conundrum. I think for me as a curator, I would be more likely to curate an exhibition on the idea of identity and use the tree as a signifier of that than I would be to think about the tree, even though I'm obviously a lover of eucalypts. So I feel like someone, I feel like if you Googled exhibition eucalypt, you'd probably find some museum, natural history museum exhibitions on the eucalypt. But I feel like perhaps this notion of identity. I mean, there's grow, no greater symbol of nationhood in a way. I mean, you know, the Gumleaf School, I look over there at the Tom Roberts. I mean, we could, and I've, in some ways, I've consciously stayed away from the big boys today. I haven't touched what, I haven't touched Johnston down there and I haven't looked at Whitehead and I haven't looked at Roberts and I, and I've mentioned in a cursory way, our friend Hans Heysen. Because in a way, nationhood was defined by those trees and by those eucalypts. Sometimes I'm more interested in the, the reversal, I suppose, of some of those ways of thinking. But I think it would make a great show all the same. No, because she, it, it, it was there, yeah, by that stage. That's it. They're all through Spain. So it's, it's actually Spain and Morocco, I think, that still have to this day the largest plantations. And I think it's something like 40% of the, the forestation projects are all around the eucalyptus. They've been, I mean, they're in South Africa. They've been hugely problematic in South, South Africa. They grow as a weed. People think of eucalypts as being quite water resistant or not needing a lot of water. Not true at all. They're really good at finding water. So they tend to actually use a lot of water. They're also, um, and many of you would know this better than I, they're also defined by fire. You know, they are, have been adapted to fire. And I believe that that's problematic in lots of other countries as well where they've been um, flamboyant species. The term itself, eucalypt, goes back to the Greek and it means well covered. So it relates usually to the seed itself with its little top. But it's the differentiation of those seeds across Angophras, Carimbias and Eucalypts that has created the diversification. That was fun. Thanks for letting me do that. It was great. Thanks for joining me. Cheers. Cheers.